I'm your host, Eric V for Victory Von Allman, and uh, welcome back to the uh, competitive Selesnia Power Hour, where we talk about all things green, white, and competitive EDH, and we talk about uh, how bad things that aren't green, white, or contain green, white, and are, are casual are, and how much uh, we don't like those things. And what episode of the Selesnia Power Hour is this? This is actually our 30th episode of the Selesnia Power Hour, so mm. officially 1.25 days of competitive green, white dominance i'm surprised and of course i'm joined by my lackeys oak <laughs> chav yep and that scrub julian yeah i'm i'm pretty bad honestly i don't even know how i got on this show uh you don't like to be competitive and you never play green i'm pretty much just the court jester where i'm like oh have you considered playing esper and then uh eric puts me in my place where i belong <laughs> yeah that's that's pretty much how it goes every time so anyway, we know you're excited for the Green White Competitive Power Hour. We'll be back right there after this breaking news. In a somewhat uh, interesting turn of events, a bunch of pros have signed an open letter to Hasbro about the slashing of the World Championship prize pool for later this year. Originally, Wizards of the Coast was offering a $1 million prize pool for the World Championship. And it is now 250000 and it was quietly changed last week, leading a lot of people to be wondering about the future of competitive events and the pro leagues of Magic the Gathering, since we've seen a lot of attention drifting away from them. So it does have a lot of people wondering where Wizards of the Coast sees their competitive scene, especially with record-breaking profits and it turning into all these prize pools being cut and events being canceled. So it's a little bit of a, a not great feel, um, which is probably why we're starting with it. Hopefully we see more clarification on where these changes are going in the near future. Well, Chev, I mean, I think we've talked about how Wizards just, just doesn't care about competitive magic anymore. I mean, they, they yeah. totally gutted open play and like the rivals Magic Pro League. We joke about how Commander is really the only thing that matters. Did this go straight to Hasbro or to Watsi? I think it was a tweet. Yeah, it was a, a tweeted open letter. It's supposed to be the, the intended recipient is Hasbro. Basically, the letter, I won't read the whole thing here, but it's saying like, Hasbro, do you know that this is what's going on? And do you specifically condone this? Understanding what it could do to Wizards image in these more competitive circles, especially when you're up against things like, uh, you know, Hearthstone and other ones that kind of lean into that more competitive aspect in different ways. So this is basically like, when that one kid is bullying you and you go to their parent yeah i was gonna say like you tell your mom and all of a sudden she's like calling the other mom it did get a lot of traction on twitter more than you know there's a certain amount of interaction you expect to see from mtg pros on twitter and that sort of thing and this got a lot more than that so you know in a, in a perfect world hopefully this saw the right people it got retweeted by all the big the big accounts um but maybe maybe we'll actually see something here probably not but i know that for the smash competitive scene Nintendo specifically does not sanction any competitive Smash event, and it's all hosted by third-party groups. Has there been any talk about, like, essentially third parties just taking over running competitive Magic? There's been a, a desire for it. I believe right now there's, like, a certain cap for a prize pool or event size if you're a third party and not a registered event. Like, there's only a certain size event that a LGS can put on because they try to bring people to these larger events. So hopefully we do see something like that. It either do something with the competitive scene or allow people who want to do something with it to do something with it. I mean, we've seen Channel Fireball, Star City Games, all host various events. We've even seen big things like, I know that, I don't think they've done one recently, but a few years ago, Red Bull was hosting pretty large tournaments, I think over in Europe. Um, and there's like a Japanese scene too. Correct me if I'm wrong, but the, the issue with that was... That was before Channel Fireball was labeled as the sole group that can put on official sanctioned Wizards of the Coast events. Like that's when Star City Opens were much more common. And that caused a lot of annoyance and grumblings at the time because people didn't appreciate Channel Fireball events as much as Star City and other ones. And there was a lot of growing pains. So hopefully we, we go back to that system of larger events that can be sanctioned. But as it stands, Channel Fireball is like the sole sanctioned kind of person. You're right. They were like the only one who could do Grand Prix. And mm, I, I think, mm -hmm. I, I don't know if those other ones were. Oh, if they counted or they could be something else. Yeah, I don't I don't know what the technicalities are on that. I, I didn't like that either when they kind of just were like, hey, here, Channel Fireball, here's a monopoly. Remember that thing that we have like all of this legislation against like about 100 <laughs> years ago? Yeah, here you go. Just do that. 
the thing is, none of these things are going to have any sort of the prestige of, like, the premier Wizards events, a.k.a. like the Pro Tour or, I mean, who knows if Worlds is going to literally exist after this year. Mm -hmm. So hopefully competitive magic turns around but the other thing i want to support it but the other thing is just i just i don't think the financial incentives are there and if there's one thing we've established it's that money runs all of this so the pros can complain all they want but right as long as we keep as long as we keep buying those commander precons and uh fancy shiny cards that's where the the interest is going to go well just as interesting but uh more fun one of my favorite Mark Rosewater quotes is today's unhinged or whatever is tomorrow's black border. And the absolute mad lad has done it again. Uh, dice are now a black border mechanic. Uh, and it is not just like a one-off fun kind of have a D20 on you so that you can play this one like kind of weird like rare. It is a theme of the uh, upcoming set Forgotten Realms. So far where we're at in spoilers right now, we've actually gotten to see that there is a legendary actually having to deal with dice. We're actually seeing a lot of things that have a sort of break point at 10 or higher so that they're they're just slightly better than winning a coin flip. Yeah, I was going to say a lot of them, they seem very close to 50-50 odds. So, you know, the previous time we saw them with Unhinged was uh, D6s. So I'm also interested to see if we see like a Blackboarder version of Croc's other thumb coming into this set to allow us to roll multiple dice. That would be amazing. Especially, there's a ton of ways to like in D&D, get advantage, which is just you roll 2d20s, you pick the higher one. Uh, it'd be, this set is all flavor all the time, so it would fall right into that niche. And uh, it would certainly be very powerful with that commander, uh, Freedy, uh, where if you just roll 2d20s and both of them are above 10, you draw two cards, which is super powerful. Uh, a lot of the effects that we're seeing these stapled on to, the first one was kind of wild with Treasure Chest where the different results did wildly different things. Those results are starting to even out now. Uh, so the most recent one that we've seen was Spiked Pit Trap, which is a one-man artifact with Flash, five, tap it, uh, sack it, roll a d20. One to nine, deals five damage to a creature. Ten to twenty, deals five damage to a creature, and you get a treasure. So it's colorless, five mana, deal five damage to a creature, and then sometimes you get a refund of that one mana that you pay up front. I really like that mild incremental value, which, like you said, you're statistically actually favored to hit, just because, as we've seen, Chev plays his uh, you know coin flip tribal EDH deck, and there are so many things where just half the time it literally just doesn't do anything because he loses the flip. Whereas this, it's like, I basically know what I'm going to do, but every now and again, I just get this, this slight upgrade. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just feels better. I think the strongest one of these cards that we've seen, it's it's up in the air between Chaos Channeler and Earth Cult Elemental. Uh, Earth Cult Elemental, when it enters the battlefield, roll d20, 1 to 9, everyone sacks a permanent, 10 to 19, or each opponent sacks a permanent, and then 20, each opponent sacks two permanents, which you're going to live for that 5%. Before we move on, one interesting thing that we, we definitely want to make listeners aware of is a D20 is not a spin-down counter. So I know that spin-downs have 20 sides, but the way the numbers are distributed on a normal magic spin-down counter is not equal odds to what you're expecting with a standard D20. Uh, the pre-release kits, and I believe the bundle uh, for Forgotten Realms, will come with an actual D20 as opposed to a spin-down. But that is something to keep in mind. If you're playing these cards, you need a proper D20. Your local game store can help, or basically any... If you find a 20-sided die where it doesn't go 20, 19, 18, 17, 16, you probably have a good one. The opposite faces add up to 21. That's how you know. Perfect. Real <laughs> real answers. Yep. Uh, I think at this point I'll hand, hand the torch off to a man who's about to delve deep in the dungeons of this set. I think it's safe to say that we're all pretty hyped for this set, Eric especially, just because he's really the only D&D one. But like Eric said, yesterday's Silver Border is today's wizards deciding it's our game we can do whatever the hell we want and the venture into the dungeon mechanic is just uh honestly peak fiction in terms of wizards being like we're just gonna make shit up so the venture into the dungeon mechanic uh there will be various cards throughout this set adventure in the forgotten realms that say when xyz criteria is met venture into the dungeon so you've got a lot of them that are just creatures that say when they etb venture into the dungeon you have uh 
another a couple creatures that say whenever they attack, venture into the dungeon. So there are various ways to do this, but whenever you venture into the dungeon, what happens is you will pull a dungeon card from outside the game, and that will come into play and you will enter the first room. So these dungeon cards basically look like little top-down floor plans, essentially. The rooms kind of go from top to bottom. So if you're looking at the Lost Mine of Fandelver, you enter the first room as the cave entrance, and then below that there are two different rooms, the Goblin Lair, the Mine Tunnels, and so on until the final room. And what happens is whenever you venture, you either start a new dungeon and enter the first room, or you proceed to the next room, and if a room has multiple ways to go down, you can choose which one and kind of Choose your own adventure. And then each room has an effect. So scry one, created treasure token. Um, each player loses two life unless they discard a card. There are varying effects. They have varying power levels. And you get this incremental value as you get these venture triggers. There are only three dungeons that they made. Dungeons are very accessible. It's not like if you're, you know, you need to go and buy four of a mythic playset you you basically only need one of each that you want to play they don't take up sideboard slots even though they exist outside the game and once you finish one that is removed technically it's removed from the game right so it's not on the battlefield anymore but it doesn't even go to the battlefield i think it exists in the command zone yeah mm -hmm. but once you finish it it just goes back outside the game which is where you pull them from anyway so you re if, if you just want to play dungeon of the mad mage over and over and over again and you just want to loop through that dungeon you only need one copy which seems very easy to get this is probably just going to take the spot of the uh like flip you can write the different you know sides of this on it from like zendikar rising yeah i wouldn't be surprised if we get all three in pre-release packs too or something like that oh the real question is can you get these in foil though because that's what that's where the money will be oh, if you can get these in foil foil because people are like oh i need my i need my foil tomb of annihilation these are exciting they're they're really different the flavor, the lore is just through the roof. It's a 15 out of 10. Um, I'm excited to play these. I think they're probably only going to be really relevant and limited, but I think it'll just be a lot of fun, especially when we do our pre-release, just to be like, venturing into the dungeon. What do you got? <laughs> uh, something. I'm going to go ahead and like lightly disagree. I think there are a couple cards that could really make this C play in standard. I don't know how powerful the dungeons are and if it's going to be worth it, but Triumphant Adventure is Orzov, Death Touch, 1-1. One, one. If it's your turn, it has First Strike, and whenever it attacks, Venture. So that is a very dangerous attacker that is going to get you at least one level into the dungeon almost all the time, and if not, your opponent's spending a removal spell on a 2-drop. Like, I think there, is, there are some threats that could really get you cranking through dungeons, the question is, is there going to be any constructed deck that really wants to? I mean, potentially. I didn't even think about the implications of... Because even though there are many cards now that say Venture, most of them, right, are limited fodder. But looking at Triumphant Adventure and seeing if there's going to be some more powerful Mythics or Rares that Venture, and you can play four of these, uh, it could be worth it. Because even though the triggers from each of the different rooms on all these dungeons, e even the most complex one, the Dungeon of the Mad Mage, just getting that much incidental value has to count for something. So if you're venturing, say you're venturing two times a turn because you went turn two uh, Triumphant Adventure, turn three Triumphant Adventure, like, that's just a lot of value. You know, that, that definitely counts for something, especially when the dungeons aren't taking up space in your actual deck or your sideboard. So I would be excited to see a, uh, a venture deck uh, come into standard. And if it does... Y'all can expect a video. Historic abs and Coco. There it is. Historic is a different beast. Uh, I don't. I don't think venture is ever happening in historic. There's just too many busted things. <laughs> historic it might as well be uh, modern, as, as far as I'm concerned. That is my so. understanding. Is that it's, it's wild out there. But anyway, speaking of modern, modern is pretty wild right now. Um, to no one's surprise, my prime pick three episodes ago from our uh, you know Modern Horizons two prime picks video, the the one man a monkey with dash, uh, Ragavan Nimble Pilfer is really making a big splash in modern right now. If you look at the meta breakdown for the past two weeks, you can see that blue red aggro is more than ten percent of the meta. Um, and those are, of course, playing four of a piece Ragavan reflected in his around seventy dollar market price right now. Keep your eyes peeled for the monkey. Uh, I, I don't. I think everyone kind of saw this coming, uh, but there might be like a flashback for that coming up soon. It's it's still very early into a um, you know into the meta breakdown of a 
deck that was designed to shake up modern and designed for modern specifically. Uh, so who knows yet, but you know, even beyond just blue red aggro, there's like Rakdos aggro and red deck wins that are still super high up in the meta um, right now. So the monkey's making a splash, and um, you know I'm 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 here for it. Honestly, love red, love modern, love monkeys. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Returning to the green white competitive power hour, uh, Eric. Today's featured topic was your idea, so please take take it away. Yeah. So for a, a break from uh, the traditional green white power hour theming, we're actually going to talk about uh, cards in all colors, uh, including colorless Ooh, cards, which I I know is a banned term. Today we'll we'll actually be talking about all cards and the idea of a point system. We have been looking for a way to define the power level of decks for a long time. And we are familiar with Canadian and Australian Highlander. We, we sort of know that they exist. We, I don't think any of us have ever played them, but... I didn't know there was an Australian one. Uh, it's seven points instead of <laughs> ten points in a different card list. It's upside down. <laughs> Canadian Highlander is uh, the one that perhaps more people are aware of. It has almost no ban list and instead gives cards points, and your deck can contain a maximum of ten points. We're not really looking to completely restructure the rules of Commander within our playgroup, so instead we're just using points as a power scaling system. I'll put the uh, the website for Canadian Highlander and Australian Highlander, if I can find it, in the show notes. So if you want to delve deep, you can access that. Yeah. So we got together, and we I, I put it, set up a Google Drive, a Google Sheets, and... We just wrote down cards, cards that we know are powerful, cards that we see a lot in our playgroup, and we all threw down however many points they're worth. And it turns out, shockingly, not all of us agree what's the most powerful stuff that we do regularly. So uh, live and in real time, we're going to hash that out for you all. Uh, We've all picked a couple key hills that we want to die on. Uh, This is not going to cover everyone's full list, but a, a full list should hopefully be coming out uh, either with this show or after this show, as an article uh, showing where we ended up at the end of all this. With our, our points list, we're missing a lot of powerful cards, and we have a lot of cards that just show up a lot for us. So uh, this is a glimpse into our meta, in addition to being a guide on some powerful cards. I guess if we're just going to start with the whole disagreeing thing, I didn't realize that was the the defined requirements that we were going through, so I'm, I'm excited to just get, get fucking wild with it. Oh! I mean, I think that the goal initially was that this would be a look at, like, the most powerful cards in all of Magic, but I uh, I don't think we got there. At any point, trying to find a way in an EDH setting to kind of classify your decks is a bit of a boogeyman in terms of, you know, we have people on a scale of 1 to 10 try to rate them, and so our playgroup has been saying roughly 8 for every deck we've made for the past three years, and that's that's kind of why we wanted to do this. I think it would be cool if we all kind of talk about the philosophy we went into with making this list as well, because we kind of all went in with a bit of a different idea on what we wanted this list to accomplish. And then we can go into why everyone else is is wrong, um, specifically probably Julian, but, you know. Rude. There's some beautiful data at the bottom of this Excel sheet that really shows Julian had a very different take on this than the rest of us. <laughs> I'd like to start, if that's okay. More, more, more generally, I feel like or the largest factors that go into how good you can rate a card uh, by itself is how powerful the effect on the card is and how hard the card is to cast. So being hard to cast can be many things. It doesn't have to be just mana cost. It doesn't have to be just, you know, the mana pips that required to cost it. It can be certain conditions under which that card it needs to be cast but an even bigger factor i feel like than either of those things is how hard it is to interact with the card for example instants and sorceries pretty much can't be interacted with unless you counter them or copy them i guess but they're not like creatures or like other permits they're special so i think a lot of um i think i highly rated a lot of instants and sorceries on the on this list going forward <clears throat> um if it wasn't stated already we all picked i think between zero and three for all of these, uh, with three being the most powerful, zero being powerful, sure, because all these cards are powerful, uh, but not as much. Quick interjection. I don't know if it was ever explained, at least to me, why it was zero to three. Can someone please state that? I just followed convention. Oh, yeah. Uh, I did zero to three, and then everyone else, like Lemmings, followed me off a cliff. Okay. 
Great. All right. I mean, as long as we're all in it together. Yeah. Yeah, that's totally fine by me. I mean, I don't think I don't think there are any sevens on this list, anyways. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, I would probably depend how we change the rating system on this scale. No, <laughs> more specifically on the, on that scale of you know four uh, tiers, zero indexed. Um, to me, a card in the zero category was one that is strong but very fair. Again, these all these cards, all the cards we chose are powerful. Um, for example, like a zero on this list, or a card that we generally all agreed was a zero would be like... Uh... Basalt Monolith, I think, is the one that went the lowest. Okay. 0.25. Yep. yep, yep. So, you know, still very strong cards, but um, no, tougher to break. Um, and then once you start getting toward these like middle areas, you get cards that can be broken if you build around them. Maybe a little bit. Like, I picked Aetherflex Reservoir as a card like this, where if you have a very streamlined build, you can you can really take advantage of the upside this card has to offer. Um, cards that make it more difficult to interact with certain combos, like, I actually put Rhythm of the Wild for this, because it makes cards uncounterable. Like I said, how hard it is to interact with a card, I feel like it's an enormous factor in this. So, uh, I went with that. <clears throat> Uh, moving up, cards that can accrue, like, a large amount of value immediately or within a turn cycle, I rate it as a 2. Um, and this includes cards that draw you a lot of cards, or of other cards, and uh, cards that can give you, like, an enormous mana advantage. Um, right, right, resources. Like, yes. cards that just give you a ton of resources. Yes, resources. Finally, at the very top end, uh, cards that are almost impossible to interact with and part of, and or part of, very, very powerful game-winning combinations of cards. And that's pretty much sums it up for me. All right, much less um, intense. My, my list of philosophy was very simple. If you play it and you win the game within a turn, it's three points. Because the game's over, like, I want to know how many of those you have in your deck. Tutors are two plus. Because they're going to get you a level three card. And they're not the card itself, so I guess you have a window of opportunity. But they're not going to be less than a two. Um, anything that's sub two mana or less tutors. Like we know that standards are comfortable with a grim tutor. Two mana or less, it's a two because it's just going to get you something powerful that you're probably going to win the game. And things like Soul Ring, if, if it's an ubiquitous card across all decks, either ban it for being ubiquitous or put it down at like a zero range because everyone's playing it. It doesn't help identify the deck. And that was a big thing for me is these numbers should help identify power level. But if everyone's starting at a one, um, that doesn't get you anywhere. So like starting off, this card's going to be everywhere. It's a zero. It doesn't help increase power level. So it shouldn't be like a, oh, my deck is worth less points. I'm not playing Soul Ring. Like ev everyone's going to play. It's a good card to play. Ban it if we have problems. I also generally fell in line similarly with the guys uh in terms of uh the the truly truly insane cards of magic like tainted pact is an easy three for me uh in part because i hate fish more than i hate most things so would you say you're not a pescatarian i would say i might be a pescatarian just so i could eat all of the fish if if you sat me down in front of a plate of every thassa's oracle ever printed come back later i'm a i'm a finish this <laughs> just to el eliminate them from the market yes <laughs> I love the idea of a vegetarian, not because you like animals, because you hate plants. So I, I, appreciate it. I will say, for all the soapboxing that Eric has done about Thassa's Oracle and, uh, to, to a lesser extent, like Labman, those sort of effects, uh, they were not on the list. He didn't even put them on there. I had to put them on there. Allow me to explain. So I think you shouldn't be penalized for running two parts of a combo. If you're running Tainted Pact, have your three points. And be on your way. I'm well aware that you're running Lab Man and Thassa's Oracle, but I don't care. I know that you're running Tainted Pack. I know that you're running Demonic Consultation. Here's five points. Get out of my house. And then here's a bunch more points for all the tutors you're playing. If you're just running Thassa's Oracle in a plain deck with no help, I don't think that's worth a point. I've updated that because I wanted to be more in line with other people. Like, you know what, okay, it probably is worth points if you're running Thassa's Oracle, because there's still Blue Sun Zenith, there's still a lot of ways to draw yourself out, even if you're not doing it in the most broken way. So, obviously you're getting even more penalized for doing that the best thing in the mo most broken way, but I generally tried to avoid 
double penalizing combos. Like Right, you, you've got to kind of penalize the enablers, not necessarily the finishers. Yeah. I did want to say one more thing, which is uh, essentially why I put tutors at one, which is uh, for similar reasons to why Oak thinks that why interaction is really important as an element. Tutoring is a huge signal. It points everyone towards you. It lets everyone know that you're about to do something. And so unless someone tutors first or someone like plays the first half of a combo and then you tutor, everyone assumes that you are trying to angle for a win now. And that should that should put warning flares up. People should start looking for hate bears. People should start looking for counters. And so tutoring to me is powerful and it is worth points, but it's it's not always worth it a lot of points. But we'll get to that. Julian, why don't you tell us about your not radically different, but notably different philosophy? So I think the biggest thing for me was we've tried to uh, approach this points list several times before. And I will say I am that asshole who I'm just super pessimistic about the thing because there's so many different variables coming at this point system that it's so hard to really nail something down. So the thing for me was basically when you tell me your the value of your deck up front, right? Say I go to FNM and this is like a widely instituted thing. And someone says, what's your value? And I'm like, it's a 10, right? Well, once someone hits a certain threshold or whatever, I basically just want that to know, are you running a deck that has like combos and tutors in it? Or are you not? Because if we put, you know, Gisela and Aurelia and like Kozilek and all these, say we give those all two points. It's like, okay, well, I'm running 37 plus mana cards. My deck is, you know, a 70 or whatever. But I'm actually not doing anything. There's so much that comes from the context. So the biggest thing for me was I want to know if you are running pieces of combos. Like, no one just runs Boonweaver Giant. You know what I mean? Like, I you, you wrote your list first, so you had a bunch of cards on here. And admittedly, you're coming from the competitive space, so you're thinking of cards that the rest of us might not immediately think of. But no one just run, runs Boonweaver Giant. Yeah. So if I know you have Boonweaver Giant, I know you're trying to combo off. You know, that's immediately I can be on guard as opposed to if I roll up and we're with a bunch of decks, and, like, we're all fours because, you know, we each have two random tutors, and, like, he has, you know, an Avenger of Zendikar or whatever. I'm not nearly on edge, and, like, it's going to be more casual, right? It's going to be more battlecruiser-friendly, traditional commander. So if you're running cards that are immediately part of combos, if you're running fast as Oracle, really, like, you're probably going to try and mill yourself out quickly and win. Um, And then also tutors, just because they function as those cards again so it's all about the redundancy and you you have established that you are on a dedicated game plan to get to that as quickly as possible not only is your deck physically built to do the thing and do it better but it's also a mentality aspect where if you are running the tutors you're running those combos that's what you're doing it's not just like you just being like oh i just like really big things these things happen to be really powerful so they're twos based on whatever scale, mm-hmm. you know, we're not cheating them onto play with a reanimate on turn two or something like that. Right. That was my whole thing. So basically what I did was, is it part of a combo that like wins the game? It's three points. Boonweaver gets three points. Bolus to Citadel, three points. Uh, Birthing Pod, three points. That sort of thing. Is it a tutor? It gets two points. So Demonic Tutor, two points. Um, similar to what Chev said. It's that card, but slightly less. You could argue probably Demonic Tutor is three points, whereas something like Fabricate is only two points, but they average out. I'll just average out to them at two points just as a nice hard and fast rule. And then since I've kind of established that as my philosophy, I just try to keep consistent with that across the board. So I understand that there are some of mine that are probably not right. Some things could be bumped up and down a point, give or take, but I just wanted to be consistent. I I will acknowledge I did a ton of gut feeling because, again, I went through this list first. And so I was like, I don't know, three, two, one, one, three, (laughs) Who gives a shit? <laughs> yeah, I definitely had the benefit of going, I think I was third-ish, yeah. so I saw what you and Chev had put, and I also had time to kind of, like I said, really concretize my philosophy, so I was like, all right, I know I know what these things need to be, and then I added some cards on at the end that I thought uh, should be at least discussed. You definitely did a lot of the heavy lifting just because you put everything down first. All right, anyone got any fighting words? Uh, well, I just want to bring this one up specifically because, and, and, you know, to start, because I, I feel like it's, I, I was looking over this, you know, as we were kind of sitting here talking, I think it's the only card here that has both a three rating and a zero rating. I'm looking at Dualcaster Mage uh, that was on this list, um, and I'm just wondering, I, I put it at a zero, because, you know, I, I really love this card, that's cool, I love copy effects uh, in red, and 
I think this is has the potential to be a strong, a strong card, but Julian, my man, put three. What's up with that? So, once again, like I said, Dualcaster Mage in Twin Flame or Dualcaster Mage in Heat Shimmer is a very powerful, arguably like a better Kikijiki because you can do it at instant speed slash on the end of someone's turn, whatever. Costs less mana too. So, because it is a part of that combo and... Have I seen it outside where it's just like I'm playing a Spellslinger deck and I just want to copy things? Yes, occasionally, but mostly when I've seen it or at least heard Dualcaster Mage referenced, it's in that context. And therefore, adhering to my very strict philosophy, it gets a 3. Should it really probably be like a 2 or like a 1.75? Yes. But, I mean, I think it averages out if you take all four of us. I do want to offer a correction. Heat Shimmer and Twin Flame, both sorcery speed. Don't know if that changes anything for you. It still wins. It still wins. Oh, yeah. But... It's win the game. It's absolutely win the game. I think one interesting thing here that we we definitely have to keep in mind, because I know it's it's tainted a few of these, is personal opinion of the card versus how powerful it normally is. So I know one of the other points that Oakley was going to bring up was like Yogmoth, Thran Physician. I have him in a, a Patra minus one, minus one counters deck. He, he can do bad things, but none of them... I think the most powerful thing he can do in that deck... Is just, if I have enough cards on the field, I can pay life to put a minus one, minus one counter and draw a card. But I can only do that so many times before it's just not useful. And it takes a lot to kill the creatures in our playgroup. So for me, I was like, this card isn't that strong. But if you focused around it, you could do a lot more heinous of things. And I think that's that's true with Dualcaster Mage. With, you know, the use case of, oh, I'm just having fun with it. Versus when it's more often seen under a different light. And I think that's why the averages are going to be a super helpful thing. I, I do think Yogmoth has, like, I, I don't even know if you've run into them, but a number of, if not infinite, like, long, long-running combos. I mean, for reference, there is a tier, let's say 1.5-ish deck in Modern that combos with Yogmoth, mm-hmm. Like a collected, collected company kind of deck. Oh my yeah. god, I didn't even realize you could hit him with Coco. That's gross. Yeah, so I guess right <laughs> off the bat, like, we're all coming from, a, a, like, different perspectives. Like, my buddy has a really nasty Yogmoth deck, and there's no infinites, but... Like, I've seen some crazy stuff that that card can do. And I guess, you know, I, I didn't even know, he, like, Heat Shimmer or whatever was a combo with Dual Caster Mage. Like, I put that card in a few decks. When I play it, all I ever want to do is just copy some spells, you know what I'm saying? But, <laughs> so I never saw the card as that powerful. But I guess, you know, a two being a two-card combo with something, it's probably, maybe, maybe it is worth bumping up a few points. But I don't know about three. And I think sort of along these lines, um, I had originally had um, the card Mindslaver at a three, because I have been on both ends of the Mindslayer combo win. <laughs> so um, I, I actually originally had that card at a three, but the more I uh, thought about it, I was just like, you know, I mean, Graveyard Hate can take care of that, right? And I, I think a big theme for a lot of mine was that Graveyard Hate cards uh, don't necessarily need to be rated higher because of their interact. Ability, I, I think that informed a lot of my decisions about like Eerie Ultimatum, for example. Like, uh, for Chev and Eric, I know you guys rated that pretty highly, but I think I I gave it such a low thing because it's like, well, first of all, it's it's seven mana and it's like seven pips, uh, you know, a specific thing, so it's pretty hard to get out there. And you know, if you see your opponent running an Abzan deck, you could probably just be like, oh yeah, that might be coming. I'm just gonna leave this uh, Soul Guide Lantern right here. I will say, I think maybe one of the things that, like, affected the way I see things is that a lot of these things, a lot, especially a lot of these big flashy things, just as the guy who's usually playing blue and some form of control, I just always kind of assume, I'm just like, oh yeah, I could probably, like, counter that if I needed to, or I could probably kill that creature if I needed to, which makes me think that a lot of these things are at least just, like, standalone, like, you know, we're all just kind of even someone plays an Avacyn Angel of Hope. It's like, yeah, that's that's a that's a threat, right? But it could just get killed. Well, exile. Certain things are harder to deal with overall. And the other thing is that I'm just kind of assuming people are going to run enough kinds of interaction, but that's not always true. Or people are going to have proper threat assessment, Chev. Um... <laughs> And not let something just go unchecked and sit for a bit. <laughs> but Jeff, what do you got to say about that, man? I think for the most part, it's like it, a lot of it comes down to, you know, yeah, most things, 
it's like the dies to Doomblade clause. Like uh, something is like, ha it could die. Um, so I'm going to not rate it high, but you have to take into account, okay, how much of my deck is actually going to be removal? Because I could make a deck that's, you know, 100% could deal with any threat, but that's boring as hell and no one wants to do that. So it's kind of like, you know, a, could a reasonable deck handle this versus could a blue deck handle this? It's probably a very different sort of set of parameters. Like, do I have access to counter magic? Only one color can do that, while multiple colors can deal with enchantments, multiple colors can deal with artifacts, multiple colors can deal with destroying creatures. So it's kind of like, once once you add this extra level of, like, I can interact in a level no one else can, that kind of changes the way you're going to look at a lot of these threats. Meanwhile, to a, 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 most others, it's going to be a game ender. My, my reasoning for Eerie Ultimatum, because I went through here first, I put that card up there because I looked through all of the decks that we play regularly, and I said, what cards in each of these decks? If I see this hit the field, am I like, that'll be game. Uh, and I was looking at Golos, and if I resolve Eerie Ultimatum, the game is over. We are not playing Magic anymore. We're, we're playing Math the Game, where I calculate how long it'll take me to kill everyone at the table. I think that must counter cards, cards where you yeah. you cannot let them resolve, are why we have points. Like, that, that is a card that you should be afraid of, and you should know that's in my deck. And that's where points come in, in my mind. That's fair enough. I, I guess to my point earlier, though, th there are more ways to deal with that than just countering the spell. Like, you could exile someone's graveyard, or just if... I mean, in, in the case of Golos, you know, you're playing red too, so you have, probably have a haste enabler, but someone could just cast, like, a wog or something, you know? So it's still it's still interactable, I feel like, in a lot of ways. Yeah, must counter might be the wrong word, but must interact. Even in the situation where you have a wrath, who's to say I didn't go get... And have us an angel of hope. Like who who's to say I I don't have a selfless spirit in my graveyard, one of your favorite cards. Yeah. Like that's super easy <laughs> to just be like, yeah, enjoy destroying your own creatures, jackass. That's legit. But anyway, one one thing that I, I did wanna I, I did wanna talk with Chev about. He and I he and I seem to and Julian, I guess, seem to firmly disagree with tu about tutors. I really think that they're one point. Unless they do something else. Like, I have Finale of Devastation on here as a high point card, because Finale of Devastation does everything under the sun. It wins you the game. It tutors a card. It makes you breakfast. It yeah. One of the big things I struggled with in Eric's original list, and I'm, I'm not sure, we didn't put like a, you can't mess with the numbers after a certain date. So some of these have like moved around a bit. Some of these are changing right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so I, one of the big things I did is I, I felt like Eric was coming at this a lot from a CDH perspective and where you probably do have access to a lot more interaction at any given time where maybe it, we've talked before, like, is that a level we want our play group? Not necessarily. So you're probably going to end up with less interaction on the whole. And so then when you, when you talk about tutors, like, oh, it's a signal, like someone can do something about it. If I'm playing a vampiric tutor and you have like one turn to do anything about it, like, maybe someone has a counter in their hand, but you don't have a whole lot of time to respond. You can kill me, maybe, potentially, depending on the board, but I feel like the value generated from that, that can not only get a game winner, but pull you out of a very horrible place, is worth mentioning. Now, granted, I am putting the hard cutoff at tutors that cost two mana or less, because if it's three mana, then at something different. But these high-powered tutors that can get you something at instant speed, too. So you could play this, the... End step before your upkeep, put it on top of your library, draw it. People don't really have a whole lot of time to respond because you're essentially just drawing the card you were going to for one extra mana uh, with like the Enlightened Tutor, Vampiric Tutor. Demonic Tutor, I'm still going to put in the same boat because it can get anything. You don't actually have a whole ton of time to respond if you're not running a deck that is half interaction. And that half interaction has to be the right type of interaction. And you still generally don't have a lot of say or, or foresight into what they're going to draw. So that's that's why I put them highly, because a lot of the time you're casting this, giving your opponents the minimum amount of interaction time, and then you're most likely going to win the game for just one extra mana. I think I'm in Camp Chev with this one for the reasons mentioned above, but also I think redundancy in a deck is just mm -hmm. such an important factor. Like yeah, a vampire copies of your best card. Exactly. Vampiric Tutor is a copy of any other card in your deck, essentially. And that's in a deck with, first of all, 100 cards, but, well, okay, maybe first of all, they're all, you know, it's a singleton format. <laughs> but uh, yeah. uh, also, 100 cards is is just, like, such a, such a strong factor. I, I want to say... I went into this bullet point and I was like, I'm going to fucking teach Chev who's in fucking charge on this podcast. I'm going to 
run a clinic on this man educationally. And then Chev started talking, and I was like, son of a bitch, I'm wrong. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I think I actually totally agree the more that I think about it. And uh, par- part of how I won myself over is I was thinking about tutors strictly as offensive tools, in which case I still sometimes think they're like one-point cards. But here's the thing. If I start to go off, you can be like, uh, yeah, I'm actually going to tutor, pop my sensei's top, interact with your combo, and sh- shut you down. I think me putting tutors as one-point cards undersold how strong they are in the game. I think they average to a two. Some tutors are a three. Some tutors are a zero. Yes. If you're playing, like, <laughs> you know, diabolic tutor. Yeah, I, don't I don't think diabolic but tutor I think they average averages to a, to a two. Yeah, diabolic tutor is a zero-point <laughs> card. Um, right, that's, that's what I'm saying. You know, if you took all the tutors in Magic, like, demonic tutor is a three mystical tutor is probably also a three probably worldly tutor is also a three averaging everything out and also the fact that they can just be used defensively as opposed to actually winning a game i think them at like a clean two just in general is is nice and i, I like chef's claws a lot of like those two mana and less tutors if we don't mind moving the combo around i, I still don't know how i feel about this but i know some people have some very strong opinions so i'd like to to discuss fast mana a bit specifically i'm looking at soul ring uh, because we have a, a wide wide range of opinions on, on that card and other fast mana cards in general. So does anyone want to take the reins? Yeah, this was a low-key at of me, so I'll, I'll go ahead and jump on this horse. Uh, I put Soul Ring on there, and I was like, Soul Ring is fast mana. It's a point. If it hadn't been printed in every Commander product ever, it would be the same price as like Mana Crypt and Mana Vault. It's yeah. just been printed mm, yeah. more. It's just as powerful you can still find ways to profit mana-wise with it. Like, Soul Ring puts in work. I'll, I'll jump in first to this, kind of going deeper into the, the point I made in my philosophy. And that's basically, like, the way I, that I look at points is it's a way to identify the power level kind of of a deck. And so if if it's a card that isn't powerful, it should be a zero. But also if it's, like, a baseline card, to me it should be a zero. Like, Arcane Signet, to me, you know, that... It is also a zero that's not fast mana but these things that you can kind of come to expect in every single deck if you're if you're looking down the barrel of like a, a 46 point deck or, or something like that and i i have a 47 because i have a soul ring in there because it's worth one point um the the decks are mostly the same and and i feel like if every deck is going to have this card there's no extra benefit from giving it a point value that's true I, I don't think that detracts from it being a very powerful card. Like, in, in the game we played, the first game we played last night, Julian went turn one, Island, Soul Ring, mm-hmm. Demir Signet, turn two, Island, Jace, and then ulted Jace, like, three turns later, because none of us had gotten our decks off the ground. Yeah. Yeah. So, I don't think that would have been accomplishable without a card like Soul Ring or Mana Vault. And that mm-hmm. is just, that's probably the quickest one we've had in any of our games in a long time. It's definitely been a quick one, but I think, like, if if any of us got the god hand with a soul ring, like, we could do it. Like, we all probably had a signet in our deck, we all have a soul ring, and we have something that costs around four or five mana that we could do something really heinous with on turn two or three. Just getting lucky, I feel like, is a hard sell for me on this particular card, where a lot of these kind of, like, you have ways to get them. I, I say ban it, but that's oh, a yeah, me, discussion. Me too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I feel like I'm still just conflicted. Like, I don't I don't know what to do. Like, I'm looking at Mana Crypt and Mana Vault, and I have them at ones. A couple of you guys have them at twos. Um, I put Lotus Petal at a zero. I just, I just don't know how to feel about these fast mana. Because, yes, these are inherently powerful cards, right? We know this. But I'm just like, do I really care if you're run- – like, it's hard to say they don't win you the game, but, like, they don't win you the game. So I'm, I'm really conflicted on how to, because since it's all fast mana, like, I want to, like, classify it, you know, in the same kind of way, like, pretty evenly. I want to have, like, a standard to hold these sort of things to, kind of like we discussed with tutors. But I'm just, like, I don't, like, if you're just playing a bunch of draft chaff, but you have a mana crypt, <laughs> mm, it's, I don't know, it's, it's hard for me. But, but who builds that deck? Who's, like, ah, yes, my Kamigawa tribal deck. Now, for the piece de resistance, mana vault. No one. You're being no, you're being you're being funny and I appreciate that, but I will say there are so many so many casual like we are technically casuals, right? But compared to the vast majority of commander players, we're way more competitive and way more entrenched in there. There are so many people who just open random whatever mythic rare or 
random very powerful card because they were like, I want to buy one pack of Eternal Masters and I just happen to get lucky. And they're like, I'm just going to put this in my commander deck because it's a good card. But like, no, not everyone goes out there and they're like, all right, well, I need my, sorry to at you, Chev, but they're like, you know, I need my Mana Crypt and my uh, Mana Vault and my Metal Worker and my Soul Ring and all this so that I can power out Kozilek on turn, you know, four. Not everyone's like that. So, you know, once again, it's the context. Like, it, I'm so conflicted, personally. I'm looking for you guys to give me an opinion that I can just adopt, really. Yeah. Can, can, I, can I jump in <laughs> Yeah, here? please. Um, so, when I went on that Florida trip with some of my college friends, almost as bad as that Jace game, uh, where you were just like, yeah, I'm going to turbo out Jace here real quick, and then uh, no one's allowed to cast the first spell each turn. One of my friends turned one Grand Arbiter Augustine with fast mana. That's bold. All of us were immediately behind. Before any of us could tutor, he was the first turn player. So no one even got to play cards before this man said, actually, all your cards cost one more. And so there are super powerful stacks effects like that that are gated behind like four, three, five as a mana cost. And fast mana is the threat there where you can be like land, lotus petal, crack the lotus petal, soul ring, boom, there's a tangle wire or something just awful. My view on these is sure. If our point system gets globally adopted, which it won't, and then someone out there at a card store is running their their three out of ten deck, but you know they in Eternal Masters they cracked a mana vault and they're super happy with it and they just held on to it because the price is still going up. That's not going to shatter the illusion that their deck is weak because the point score of their deck will still be so low. It'll still be very comparable to decks at that power level, and also it'll help add on to the total. Because it's not that you're running just Soul Ring. It's not that you're running just Lotus Petal. It's that if you're running all of them, I want to see that point build up on top of your deck. Yeah, I agree. I think a, a card's theoretical worth is its standalone power level, but when you you, you have to judge the deck as a whole and uh, see, you know, like, what other cards exist that in the deck that could synergize with this spell, or what cards... What other cards does this spell enable? And fast mana is just... It synergizes with every card in your deck, you know? Like, doesn't matter what you're running. It's... It's everything. <laughs> that is true. I would be fine with taking Soul Ring off the list, but uh, I really do think that the rest of those cards deserve points. I mean, I guess just because for the fact that those aren't, in, you know... Uh, what's the word? Ubiquitous is the word that I'm looking for. You know what I mean? Because basically everyone owns a Soul Ring. Well, that, like... that and they're more powerful. Like, if we're talking about, you know going off turn one if i play a mana crypt that can tap for three as opposed to two that's a huge difference in those early card values or the mana vault i probably have these backwards that you play for free and tap for two or three like these things are just more powerful than soul ring inherently and that's probably why soul ring gets reprinted every year so i feel like yeah there's i i could totally see taking soul ring off and then still holding these other ones accountable um, but I definitely think there's a difference between them as opposed to a blanket all fast mana statement. Yeah. Uh, Grim Monolith is also on the list of cards that are fast mana, but we actually all agreed that that was two points. Just like immediately we were all like, yeah, Grim Monolith, two points. <laughs> uh, Basalt Monolith, though, people were like, nah, that's not worth points, despite the fact that it does the same thing. It costs three and taps for three. What do you mean? Okay, it's not fast mana. It combos in the exact same way as Grim Monolith. I think the fact that it gives you fast mana in addition to being a combo piece is enough to put it above the other. Yeah. Oh, Grim Monolith should absolutely be worth more points than Basalt Monolith. I'm just arguing that Basalt's still worth a point. That's probably true. <laughs> um, <clears throat> different kind of fast mana. Um, Mirari's Wake. This this was an interesting one. We had one outlier. Me, Chev, and Eric gave this all two points, and Julian gave it zero, so... You know, the the ceiling for this is way higher than, like, a mana crypt, but I still was just like, oh, it's just a mana thing. The other thing is, this thing is... It's gated in green-white, which, although we've established that green-white is the most powerful color combination, <laughs> you know, not that many people play green-white. And it's five mana. Once you get there, yes, you can get crazy, but also, by the time you get to five mana and you're playing your Mirari's Wake people are much more equipped to do something about it. I could move it up to a one. I don't I don't know if it's a two. It's certainly not a three. I'm actually more inclined to put it in the one category the more I look at it. I, I think the argument of you can interact with this spell is, is a bad argument. 
Agreed. I think it's extremely relevant considering you're you're generally playing at a table of four people. So that's three, you know, maybe even more. That's three full resources of people being able like what are the odds that random haymaker just get gets answered like almost immediately pretty high if i i personally think if you're playing at a properly balanced table where when i saw this one i've just had so many vietnam flashbacks of eric playing morari's wake and it it making it around the table just once your opponent is just is on the moon like you're (laughs) they at least have 10 mana because they tap the like you're the the thing down in the first place you're in the dark ages your opponent's in like space conversation yeah i I want to throw this out there julian do you remember the time i resolved to turn to mirari's wake and what a fucking nightmare game that was well one no two once again this is like corner cased out my fucking ass almost no one ever gets to do that that of course that's ridiculous that's like playing like four mana crypts on turn one so what more what i'm saying is like through some lucky drawing of fast mana, great callback to why fast mana is worth points, I was able to really quickly power out this card before people had answers, and it put me miles ahead. It just, it offers such a huge resource advantage that I think it it has to be worth points. So I agree with you that it's a one-point card. I'm not trying to fight for it to be worth two. I'm just saying... Okay, all right. I'm, I'm just saying, like, A, it doesn't, it's not like it's green, green, white, white, and one. It's green, white, and three of anything. So I, I think that that is a relevant aspect to how easy it is to power out this card. I don't know. Once again, luck does not factor into it. Like, that random Jace Planeswalker from Shadows Over Innistrad won me that game the other day. But is that... I think that's a zero-point card. It's literally only because I got it out on turn two and also because no one had anything. That luck doesn't count to me. You know what I mean? Like The thing is, you can apply that logic to all of the cards on this list and... Because of that, you can apply it to none of them, I feel like, you know? <laughs> but, like, for combo cards, though, it doesn't matter when you get them, right? If you get the combo, unless someone interacts, you win the game, right? And some of these are very hard to interact with. Whereas, like, once again, if you play stupid whatever on turn 10, it doesn't matter. In terms of the Ugins, in terms of the the Mirari's Wake, because these are cards that I really think are worth points, and some of you guys disagree on Ugin, some of you guys disagree on Mirari's Wake. These are cards where, sure, one in a hundred games, they win you the game immediately because you're able to power them out with your fast mana, with ramp, whatever. But in in 50 to 60 of those hundred games, they they mark a turning point for your deck where, you know, you're, you're the control deck, you've fallen behind, Ugin, minus six, you have a powerful Planeswalker, everyone lost everything, and you still have all your mana rocks. You went from behind to miles ahead. Almost every time we see Ugin drop, we see that happen. Yeah, and then we see Ugin die. Like, Ugin is never around for long. He wipes the board, but you're still, and then he leaves. You're still back in the game That's from being out of it. And those cards are exiled. It is better Merciless Eviction because it requires a follow-up answer. And it can be run in any deck. I'm one partial to Ugin because that card is just great in control decks, which I like to play. The thing for me is, for that one... Any card, which guaranteed we don't have that many on this list, but cards that are answers are like like negative two points for me. Because I'm like, I'm just trying to like make sure that I don't die or that you don't just win the game. You know what I mean? That's why like if Force of Will was on this list, it would be like zero points for me. So all the things that are proactive in terms of getting you guys dead slash winning me the game, whatever, those are the ones that I'm giving points to generally. No, because also you can use it offensively to protect your pieces. Like, if you have no mana because you tapped out to play a big threat and you're holding up zero with a force of will, like, that is a very different deck than one that can't. So I, I definitely, I, I think negative points is a very dangerous area to put ways to deal with things. This is me being hyperbolic, obviously, you know, negative points. And of course, we all have our own personal biases, right? No one here is not affected by that sort of thing when they were creating the list and making their points. Chef, that's a good point, right? Obviously, a lot of combo decks run that free interaction or that dangerous yeah that dangerous interaction or whatever so that they can get their thing through but if that's the case you're already running whatever combo i know that you have the combo in there so i'm assuming you have ways to force it through and i will proceed accordingly and hopefully everyone else at the table will proceed accordingly i I think where where that argument falls apart a little bit like not not fully i I think that's a a good thought that you know a deck that runs some of these is probably going to run more of them and raises the level but Running against the thing um, that I, I know was one of the points that you made, Julian, about why you have a bunch of cards that are at the top and a bunch of cards that are at the bottom. And that's like, you don't want to penalize someone who might have a bunch of decent cards, but they're not great. 
And so that still ticks up the point value of their deck to a point where it could be comparable to a deck that's running like one combo and a vampiric tutor. So they could be equal in level, but you know, one deck is going to win far more often than the other. And in that case, the deck that is going to win more likely or more likely to win probably has these other things in there. And that's what makes it, you know, worth even more. Like if you're running interaction, that's free. I think all of those are baseline, like one point. We never really got into that. If you're running those extra cards, that does make your deck more powerful in a way that should make it worth more points than the guy who opened up a Carnage Tyrant and a Selvala Stampede. Every strategy should have cards on this list that are marked for points. If you're running a control deck, then let's flag your Fierce Guardianship, let's flag your Ugin, let's flag your Force of Will. Let's tag those cards and say, you know what? Those are your point cards. If you're running a Timmy Beatstick deck filled with heavy top end, big beaters, uh, let's flag yourself all a Stampede. Let's flag your Eerie Ultimatum. Let's get those cards marked so that, you know, if you've reached that power level, we start to see those points crop up as those start to appear in your deck. Any counterspell you have to pay for, I, I don't care. I expect every blue deck to have those in it. We, we just can't flag all those as points. It's too much. Once we start to see very powerful control tools showing up, that's when I start to want to know that those exist in your deck. That's that's fair enough. Once again, it's this minutia that really makes this something interesting to talk about, but also makes it so freaking difficult for us to all be at a consensus. You know what I mean? Because like, I'm willing to be like, it's... 0.47 of a point or you know this is a this is a 1.3 integers you know what i mean we only it's, work in integers in this house i know that's what I'm saying. right yeah no we're not we're not trying to we're not trying to make this difficult that's that's what i'm saying it's, oh what's your next point value it's actually pi strangely enough <laughs> if you were to just take a thirty thousand foot view or whatever just like yeah we we are basically all on the same page for 95 percent of this we're pretty much all on the same page yeah that's what makes it interesting as we get up yes. there in the hours, yeah, please. Uh, does anyone have any any final cards that you want to nail nail up there and say, "Hey, I don't like this." I think I'm good. I I really have no qualms with Oak. I've settled. I've settled my. I think there should be lots of cards with points with Julian. I've settled my tutors with Chev. Well, Chev settled his tutors with me, really. And uh, Oak, there there were a couple cards that we disagreed on, but overall, I think we came to this with very similar philosophies. Yeah, I think you're right. I just resigned that I would be disagreeing or at least defending myself with pretty much everyone, and that's what I did, so. That is true. I definitely had the most differences with Julian. For the viewers at home, I believe there was a total of uh, 77-ish cards on our list. Julian had the most uh, of those being level 3s at 19 total picks, while Eric, uh, Oakley, and I had around 6 or 7. But most of the other stats, oh, and the most zeros at 21. Oakley had second most at 11 of these cards being zeros, and Eric and I had three or five based on soul level. So it's another thing to see like the, the actual split of those two. I will say though, once again, once you get on the microscopic level, these discrepancies are huge, but across the board, Eric had a total of 113. Chev had a total of 118. Mm -hmm. I had a total of 110 and Oak had a total of 112. Some of those have been slightly modified during the cast. I know my personal self changed maybe three cards. Um, but I mean, a total spread of, eight points over a total of 77 cards that's still pretty tight yeah yeah I'm, I'm excited to go back through this again with hindsight and then uh as long as we can all agree we'll round off those those averages at the end and uh a final points list will be coming out to you the good people of the internet very soon something that would be really cool is we could probably just throw a drive link in here so that people can see this and then as we potentially keep this updated, either changing numbers or adding cards or taking cards off, they can see how that kind of reflects as we continue yep. to play that games. Cool. And we would love to hear from you guys listening if there's anything that we missed. What are your threes? What are your zeros? What are cards that you really want to see reflected in this overall point system? And the best way to do that is to hit us up at hexstringers at gmail.com or check us out at hexstringers on Twitter and Instagram. Eric, if they want to see more of the green-white competitive power hour, where, where oh, can they go? Well, they, they can find me displaying that uh, in full on Twitch and uh, at the Hex Drinkers, uh, or they can catch some highlights of you and me living it up uh, on our respective uh, preferred forms of online magic uh, on our YouTube channel, which is Hex Drinkers. Uh, and, uh, Jeff, if these good, good people wish to uh, perhaps see even more of our content, uh, where might they go? 
they can go to Patreon, where we are as uh, hex drinkers, like many of our other social media platforms. And kind of becoming a patron for us will get you all kinds of benefits, like hearing the entire length of this current pod that is one of our longer ones, going on an hour and 18 minutes unedited. Uh, I'm sure Julian is going to have to cut out a lot of the back and forth and the kerfluffle. So if you want all of that stuff, if you want our full notes list and our philosophies, if you want to put website uh, flavor text on there for our desktop viewers, I have been informed it is not on mobile. We will consider doing that. Um, you can also pay money and then we give you those benefits. I personally think it's a great deal, but I might be slightly biased. Uh, speaking of which, we do have a website and that's hexdrinkers.com. Uh, it's got a lovely Twitch button on it, so you'll know <laughs> when Eric's streaming, and you can just click that and just go right to the stream. It's great. Who made that lovely, lovely Twitch button? I don't know, but he's... I bet he's handsome. I bet he's very smart as well. <laughs> <laughs> yep. I bet you he also has some Fuego articles on there. We do have writ co written content on the website. I think we're good. Sweet. See ya. See ya. <laughs> See ya. <laughs>